Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. In my home today to be on the podcast is my friend Joe Horton. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you very much, Richard. Good to be here. Um, We're going to talk about um, Joe's wonderful marriage to his wife, Anne. They were married 43 years, and Anne died in April of 2021 of MS. Um, Joe and I became friends at the sports mall. Um, We both kind of got on the same workout schedule the late afternoon, and I keep to myself at the sports mall, but for some reason, Joe just was someone I felt comfortable talking to, and he told me a little bit about his life, including his wife at MS, and I told him a little bit about my church work and trying to better support people. We've just been friends and have traded emails over there. Years and in fact, Joe was uh, made podcast 59 possible um, way back in um, November of 2018 when he connected me with those two guests. But in recent emails, um, Joe and I were just exchanging some emails, and um, he he mentioned, and I'll read this from the email P.S. I lost my beautiful and brave wife Anne a year ago to complications from MS. We battled together for 43 years. I believe, I believe before that learning to love is the ultimate mission in life, but leave it even, believe it even more strongly and deeply now. If we learn to do that, our life is a success. No other accomplishment can compensate for it. Then I Googled Anne's obituary and just read more about Joe's wife, someone who I'd never met. Um, and then I felt an impression. Joe did not reach out to me and said, I'd like to be on your podcast. Uh, most of my guests do, but I had a couple really strong impressions that to invite Joe to be on the podcast to share about Anne and their 43-year marriage. Why? Because I think there's some listeners that need to hear what Joe has learned that are walking a similar road that Joe has been walking with his wife, Anne. It's a beautiful love story, but it's a difficult road. And um, that's our joint prayers, the things that Joe shares about his um Love affair with his wife, Anne, who is now passed, will help you, whatever stage of a road you're on. Um, professionally, Joe, and he probably doesn't want me to mention his professional, um, he served, well, this isn't his professional, he's a, it's in his late 60s, he served a mission in Rome, Italy from 73 to 75. He grew up in Pasadena, California, then he made his way to the University of Utah, he got a BA in English, and then he got a master's in hospital administration from the University of Minnesota in 1981. <clears throat> He's been president and CEO of Primary Children's Hospital here in Salt Lake City from 1994 to 2017, and senior vice president of hospital administrations at IHC from 2007 to 2012. Now he's a full-time professor at the University of Utah teaching in the Masters of Hospital Administration program, focusing on leadership and ethics. Um, and I have real passion for that. He also guest teach at University of Minnesota. But um, our joint prayers, this will just help you as um, you hear Joe's story. One of the things that's unique about this story is Joe, when he met Anne, um, was not diagnosed with MS, but that diagnosis came before they were engaged. I'll let Joe tell that story as part of the podcast and how they navigated that. Um, is that okay for an introduction, Joe? That's great. Thank you. 
So I'll just turn it over you to you to share, and we'll link to Anne's obituary um, in the show notes so you can read more about this wonderful woman who's gone. But I'll turn it over to you, Joe. Thank you, Richard. So, yeah, I want to start with whatever else this is. It is first and foremost a love story. So I want to tell a little bit about Anne and how we met as kind of the framework for what will follow. We met at a dance in October of 1977. It was at a place called the Rock Loft, which was a cherry processing plant. It still exists today. Her father owned it. And she and I ended up in a foursome. She was there with a boyfriend that she'd been going with for about a year. I was there with a girlfriend I'd been with for about a year. And we were doing some um, square dancing. And at a certain point, we had to star in and star out with folks that weren't our partner. And I felt something very unique when I touched her palm to palm that very first time. It was a deep impression that you need to know this girl. She is a person of great quality. Uh, I felt instant respect for her. And in fact, she looked familiar. And for about a month, I was trying to figure out who she reminded me of. I asked my brother who was with me, who is it that we know that she reminds me of? And he just looked at me with a blank stare and said, I, I don't know anybody. I was sure that, that I knew her somehow. Um, later, based on her patriarchal blessing that said that if she was patient, she would be guided to uh, a husband that was someone that she knew before she came. And I am grateful that that was me. And we've had uh, confirmation of that, the spiritual intimations since then. I felt something I'd never felt before. I felt this attraction to her, but it was very peaceful. There was no rush. Uh, I had this feeling that it will happen in due time. And so nothing happened immediately. In February, I was at a friend's house who was showing some slides of Egypt, and she happened to be there. So this was months later. And after the slideshow, she came up to me and said, why have you been so cloistered? Now, that's a word that an English major would use, but not everybody <laughs> would use it. But it meant so sort of separated, locked away. And I liked the question because it signaled that she wanted to get to know me better. And so I was pleased with that comment. Anne was an English major, by the way, like I was. Uh, a little bit later, I gave a talk in church at a student ward that we were both in. And I had a limited amount of time. I wanted to talk about three of my heroes. I had Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Albert Schweitzer. And as the talk went, I ran out of time to talk about Schweitzer. So I just mentioned his name at the end of my talk. And as afterwards, I was in the, the foyer. I had a number of um, other students come up and, and make generous comments about the talk. And then Anne came up and she was kind of laughing and she said, what did Albert Schweitzer ever do for you? <laughs> I, I have to admit, I, I had an impulse. It angered me a little bit because I knew I was being accused of name dropping. I had an impulse to say, you wouldn't understand. And a very bizarre experience that instead of those words coming out and they were literally on my lips, um, what came out was, if you really want to know, let's get together and I'll tell you. Well, that led to our first date. 
And I'm sure glad I didn't say you wouldn't understand. Uh, I have a feeling that Matt and Drew, our sons, were the ones that uh, switched scripts on me in that <laughs> moment to make sure I didn't say that. So I, the next thing that happened was uh, I remember carrying her books for her at the University of Utah Library. And something about that just felt deeply right. I'd never felt that in that way before. And I, in fact, I wanted to do more for her. I just thought, I, what can I do for Anne? I, I want to do as many things as I can for her. Well, our first date, which was the talk about Albert Schweitzer, which we ended up not actually talking about, we went up Mill Creek Canyon in May, and she cre- had prepared for us aluminum foil dinners. And uh, we had just a, an amazing time talking about all kinds of things, getting to know each other in the beauty of that canyon uh, that evening. And I brought my guitar, and after it got dark, I played my guitar for her and sang her a James Taylor song, Sarah Maria, on the guitar. And I was glad that it was dark because uh, she couldn't see that I was blushing a little bit with embarrassment. I hadn't done a lot of singing at that point for people, but it helped that it was dark. Not too much later, I was talking to a group of fellow students down the street from where I lived, and they were telling me that they had known her a year earlier and that they had nicknamed her Anne Amorous Anne, which was code for this is a girl that nobody gets to kiss. Um, (laughs) She will keep you at arm's length. And Anne was that way. She was very selective. And uh, unless she thought that there was more potential, she was only dating casually. And frankly, she was known as a heartbreaker although she never intentionally did anything with that, but people just didn't get as far as they hoped they would with her. So a little bit later, we were asked by the bishopric in that student ward to teach a new class called Parental Preparedness. And and this was a little weird because I was in the Elders Quorum presidency already, and she was teaching with someone else. Normally, they don't give you an additional calling like that. And then this one had no lesson manual, which meant we had to get together for hours to figure out what are we going to teach next Sunday. And so we went on long walks and we ended up every week going on long walks to try and figure out what are we going to teach our peers about parental preparedness, given that we're no more prepared than anyone else. And all of us were unprepared. That turned out to be a, a great thing for us. We ended up talking about deep things, meaningful things, before there was an act of romance involved. So there was absolute honesty. It was very authentic in terms of learning about each other and what our views were about families and parenting. And we found that we were very much aligned in all those things. The month that we fell in love was June of 1978. and. Towards the end of that month, on June 26th, Anne was admitted to LDS Hospital for tests. She had some symptoms that they couldn't diagnose, and so she had to go through a series of tests. I visited her every day, and one of the things I noticed about her was that she refused to wear the standard hospital gown, which I liked. I thought that was pretty spunky. (laughs) Uh, and I liked the spunk. She was definitely someone to be reckoned with. She was uh, a person of backbone, intelligence, and a strong will. The last night I was there, 
she reached out and hugged me at the end of my visit. And that was the first hug that we had, and I kissed her on the cheek. And I walked out of the hospital that night in a daze of euphoria. On Thursday, the 29th of June, so three days later, we walked to a church on 11th East near 5th South. If there was any one place that could be singled out as the location at which I realized I'd fallen in love with Anne, it was there. I wrote this in my journal. I can't adequately describe what happened there except to say that no one had ever told me anything which penetrated as deeply into my soul. I knew then that whoever had Anne's love would have a treasure. We understood each other. It was something we had not been able to share with others. I realized that she was an ideal that I had very nearly given up on. I so wanted to be her best friend. And that was when she told me that the doctors had made a diagnosis from the tests. She had multiple sclerosis. I was stunned. And yet I felt a calmness that seemed incongruent with the situation. She noticed it and it comforted her. End quote. As a part of that MS diagnosis, the doctor had told her, quote, you have 10 good years left and you should never marry. As she and I were sitting in a sacrament meeting a few weeks later, there was a talk given about a priesthood blessing and a healing that took place. And I got a very strong impression that she should be given a priesthood blessing. I struggled as to whether or not to tell her that because I knew this was a big thing and I didn't want to set her up or her family for a disappointment. It's not a small thing to recommend that someone receive a healing blessing. And I hesitated for a number of days, but kept getting this impression. And finally, I thought, well, it won't be me that gives it. That's for sure. I was a boyfriend at that point and just barely. And so I thought, I'll just let her know I've had this impression, and then she and her family can run with it. Well, I ended up having a, a Jonah experience, because after I told her that in the shower, I started getting these strong impressions, you will give the blessing. And it wasn't a message that I was willing to accept. I kept saying to myself, no, that's crazy. I, am, I don't have any standing here at all. Her father, her bishop, her patriarch. There's so many people that have more standing here than I do, and I've strongly preferred that it be somebody else, one of those. Uh, kept on getting that impression, much to my chagrin, and at a certain point, she wanted me to mention it to her father that I had that impression about her getting a priesthood blessing, so I did, and he said that he and uh, Anne's mother would pray about it as well. So we all prayed about it, and about a week later, I got a call from her father, who I'd never met. And he said, we've prayed about it, and we feel good about Anne getting a priesthood blessing. And this was the shocking part, and we think you should give it. Wow. I felt in that moment, given the impressions I had, that I had to give it, as much as I felt that it was over my head and beyond my standing. So I agreed to do that. and. Uh, took it very seriously. I went to the temple. I went to on walks in the mountains. And I kind of tried to make a deal with the Lord that my impression was that she be given and receive a healing blessing. 
And so to be faithful to that, I would give her a healing blessing. And if he didn't want me to, he needed to take me out of that responsibility. I didn't feel any impression that I should take myself out. So that was the dynamic for several weeks. And finally, just before I was to give her the blessing, I sat down with her and said, I, this is how I'm approaching it, and I still feel like I need to give you a healing blessing. And then she prayed about it. We prayed together, and then she prayed separately. So in late August, we gathered at her parents' home, and it was me and her patriarch and her bishop and her father. And I have to say, my knees were pretty much shaking. I don't know how I stayed in a standing position. But I gave her a blessing with the power of the priesthood that she would be healed completely. And um, there was a good spirit there. At the end of that, her bishop and her father and the patriarch that had given her a patriarchal blessing all mentioned that they felt a great peace about it. Well, um, it didn't turn out exactly the way we thought it would. And so Anne at that point was still ambulatory. She'd been having some blurred vision. And she did notice that immediately the blurred vision was healed, that it stopped, which was unusual. That's a fairly common presentation for early MS. That went away, and she told me after that many times that that healing blessing was a healing blessing and that it particularly healed her sight. And I always thought that referred to her blurred vision, but I learned later from a letter that she wrote to my sister about three months after the blessing that actually she was blind in one eye when I gave her the blessing and she'd been in bed for a week at the insistence of doctors. And that blindness was healed by that blessing. And when she went back, the ophthalmologist said, I don't understand this, but your eye looks normal. So that was a great blessing. Uh, and since she was ambulatory, but she walked with a bit of a limp, it was one that she could claim was from a skiing accident. And so that's what we did for the next nine to 10 years. Anytime anyone asked, she said it was from a skiing accident. On July 23rd, going back to the chronology of our courtship, I took her to Mueller Park in Bountiful with the express intent to tell her for the first time that I loved her. So this was just after she'd been diagnosed. And as we got to the spot where I thought it would be the right place to tell her that, she surprised me by saying it first. And I knew that she'd never said that to anyone else before. It was a, a holy moment. For me, and that's when I also learned about her patriarchal blessing and that she would marry someone that she had known before. As I communicated this to my parents, my father was a, an, a physician, an internist. And when I told him that she had MS, he had a very strong reaction. He told me, he said, you, you can't marry this girl, not even if she were the, the girl of your dreams, Joe. And I said, well, she is the girl of my dreams. He said, well, it will kill you. So it's just a, an incredibly hard, difficult disease. And as my mother learned about it, the two of them said, I'm sure that she's a wonderful person, but we can't give our blessing for this knowing that she has MS. That was a real 
shock and a sobering thing for me to hear. I had a wonderful relationship with both my mother and father. I was never alienated, um, as a number of people can be from parents. And so I wanted to respect them and honor them, but I loved Anne and I felt all of this reinforcement spiritually that she was the one that I was supposed to marry. Well, I felt that just going ahead, we were going to formalize our engagement, and I felt it wasn't right to do that. So I had to tell her I thought we should not uh, formalize our engagement, and it was a hard thing for her to hear. About that same time, I entered into law school, which I did not have a good feeling about. My personal patriarchal blessing had mentioned that if I had strictly, if I would strictly observe the word of wisdom in my life and seek prayerfully to know that I would be guided to, quote, the career to which I was destined, end quote. I knew that wasn't standard language for patriarchal blessings, so I took that very seriously, but I had absolutely no idea what that was. It pleased me that I had something I was destined to do and that evidently it was something that God cared about. It troubled me that I had no idea what it was. Uh, so after graduating with an English major and knowing I wanted to go on and get um, additional education, the only logical thing seemed to be to go to law school, but I didn't have a strong feeling that that was something I was destined to do. But I was accepted at the University of Utah and I went to law school for a week and every day I came home and prayed about it. Is this what I'm destined to do? It doesn't feel like it. At the end of that week, I dropped out, not having received any affirmation or positive guidance that that was what I was supposed to do. So I dropped out with literally nothing else to grab a hold of, which was at first a relief and then terrifying, uh, both socially and for my future. When people asked, what are you doing? I had no response. I've just dropped out of law school. The following months were miserable, both because I had just dropped out of law school and had no idea what I'd be doing, and because Anne and I were not formalizing our engagement. And then uh, um, one of the first of a number of miracles happened, which was one day I got a call from my father, and he said, I need to tell you about something that happened to me today. And he said, it was very pointed, and I've never had anything like this happen in all of my years as a physician. I had uh, a woman that needed a physical and she was waiting in my waiting room and as patients often do, she was reading magazines there. And when she was called by my receptionist to go on in to the exam room, she brought the magazine in with her, which no one had ever done. And as she came in and I needed to proceed with the examination, she just laid it open to a particular spot on my desk. I went ahead and gave the physical, and about an hour later, she walked out, and as I was writing and completing my notes in the chart, I noticed this magazine, and more specifically, I noticed a picture of Einstein, and Einstein was one of my dad's heroes. So he picked up the magazine, wanted to read why Einstein's picture was there. It turned out that he was there giving advice to a Jewish man who had written him a letter saying, my, my, my son has fallen in love with a woman who's not Jewish. 
And I know you can appreciate the Jewish uh, tradition and how important that is, our heritage. I just can't give my blessing to this. And I just wondered what your advice would be. My son's very upset that I'm not supporting his intention to marry this girl. And Einstein's response was basically along these lines. I must tell you that I don't approve of parents intervening in their children's love lives. That was the start. And then he went on to say, if you love your son, I think you need to respect him. And if this is truly the person he loves, I don't think you should be objecting, notwithstanding the Jewish tradition, which I do appreciate, and I understand it. But I don't think that's a good reason for you to withhold your support. My dad told me, he said, when I read that, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I knew that it was a message for me about you. And he said, I just want you to know that I will not object any longer and that whoever you decide to marry, and if that's Anne, as I assume it will be, you have my blessing. Wow. So that was a remarkable experience to have that, that launched us then on a formal engagement. I asked her father for her hand on January 21st of 1979. And we were married on June 6th of 1979 in the Salt Lake Temple. That's a beautiful love story, Joe. Thank you for sharing. Um, that's just sacred ground for you to take our listeners there. Thank you for doing that. And my impression is just to have you continue to talk. <laughs> I have a couple questions, but I've, my impression is keep telling the story. Okay, thanks. I will, I will do that. So, two months after getting married, we went to Minnesota for grad school for me to be in the Master of Hospital Administration program and got a full-time job. And we had a great adventure that first year together. Had to rely on each other. It was a very bonding experience since we knew no one else really there. Um, and we were truly at the beginning of a number of challenging experiences that we now have the chance to take on together. Uh, not too long after that first year, July 29th, our first son was born, Matt, 1980. And um, shortly after that, I had a residency at LDS Hospital, which was a required part of my master's program. It was a one-year residency. And it was at LDS Hospital here in Salt Lake City. And I came home one day. I'd been observing the other administrators of the hospital. I was there in the C-suite with the CEO of the hospital, the chief operating officer, and all the assistant administrators every day. And I was a little troubled because I thought they were great people, but I was not like them. They were more business-oriented, and I was not business-oriented. I'd come from an English background, humanities, literature, history, philosophy were the things that interested me the most. I had almost no interest in business. And I thought, maybe I'm in the wrong field. Um, I'm not like them. At the time, our little boy, Matt, was about one month old. And I knew this could be an alarming thing to tell my, my wife <laughs> after just completing a year of uh, graduate work on campus in Minnesota to say I may not be in the right field at a time where she was going to be depending on me and our growing family. 
So I tried to word it very carefully as I thought uh, just before I came in the door that day coming back from work. And I, she was sitting in a rocking chair. I remember it so clearly. And I said, you know, I, I have a concern that I, I'm not like the other administrators. And I think maybe that says something about whether this is the right field. I was expecting she had Matt on her lap and she was rocking him. He was sleeping. And I saw absolutely no concern on her face. And without any hesitation, she said, well, that's because you're supposed to be at the children's hospital. Just like that. I've never had Richard an experience like this before or since, but that was like a lightning bolt. It, it went right through the crown of my head all the way through to my feet. An absolute affirmation that that's it. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what that destiny phrase is all about in your blessing. It's the children's hospital. Anne saw it before I did, and I'll forever be grateful that she had that intuition and that spiritual clarity. So that changed everything in a very positive way. Over the next six years, I worked at the central office of Intermountain Healthcare and five years at Cottonwood Hospital. And I wasn't at all worried about going to a children's hospital. I knew that was going to happen, and I didn't mind that it happened later, um, as long as it happened. So on October 8th of 1983, at Cottonwood Hospital, our second boy was born, Drew. And uh, that was a momentous day, and it was a gift to me that he was born in, in my hospital, the one that I worked in. And I was able to run from my office into the uh, delivery suite at the right time to be there for the birth and um, to witness that amazing event. So Anne was able to walk for the first 10 years of our marriage. So the physicians had it correctly in that she would have 10 good years of, of ambulatory um, status. And then it began to be harder and harder for her to walk. And she became very involved in our boys' elementary education at Eastwood Elementary School, which was a co-op. And she had been a teacher. She taught public school, middle school, English and reading at Butler Middle School here in the Valley for five years. So she was a wonderful teacher and being able to do that for our sons, both of whom went to the elementary school there and were in the co-op was a wonderful thing. And great. We were grateful that she was, had the strength and, and the mobility to do that. After a valiant fight, we had hoped that she would never need a wheelchair. And that had been a prayer that we'd offered over and over again. And our boys became schooled in that too, to pray that, she would always have the strength to walk. But after a valiant fight, Anne began to use a wheelchair in 1992. When I was appointed the chief executive officer of Primary Children's Hospital in 1994, she was using it full time. Her sons, Matt and Drew, both went on missions. Matt to Portugal and Drew to Italy, where I had served. Both dedicated their missions to Anne, hoping for a miracle. We had numerous priesthood blessings. I gave Anne many blessings. We were also blessed to have 
priesthood blessings given by Elder Neil Maxwell and Elder Jeffrey Holland. Both of their wives served on the board at Primary Children's while I was there as CEO. And through that connection and getting to know them, we were able to uh, receive that, that kind of blessing. I'll never forget that one of the things that Elder Maxwell said in his, said in his blessing, which to me was such a great description of Anne, was he said, I bless you for drinking from a bitter cup without becoming bitter. And you'll see that's in the obituary that Richard referred to um, earlier. That to me, though, is such a powerful statement, given what Anne went through and the, the uh, over 30 years of being confined to a wheelchair, never becoming bitter and never becoming angry about that. She had her moments where she was frustrated, where the two of us felt great despair, but she never became bitter. And she always was able to come back to a place of hope and particularly faith in Jesus Christ. That was the center for her. And it was the center for our family. It was hard for us both, Anne and I, to feel that we had taken the leap of faith in getting married and having children, both or which were things we'd been advised not to do, given MS and what was known at the time. And I should mention here that the treatments for MS now are much better than they were when we were at that stage. So there's a lot that can be done now. There wasn't a lot that could be done when we went through this. We felt that God had not caught us. We'd taken the leap and God had not caught us as we hoped and thought he would. Our sons, Matt and Drew, also felt that very strongly. I have to say it was an everyday source of spiritual and emotional pain for all of us. And we asked ourselves questions. Are we not worthy? Are we doing something wrong? Those were painful questions even to think about. We were trying so hard and so hopeful that the blessings that, that Anne had received and the the miraculous things that had happened that had encouraged us to be on the path we were on were still not resulting in a healing blessing for her MS in the way we, we hoped it would. Over the next 30 years, for me personally, two scriptures that helped me on a regular basis were Isaiah 55, where we read that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and that his ways are not our ways, and that is the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. That's always impressed me. That's, that's an infinite metaphor. He could have said, as the mountains are higher than the valleys, but he said, the heavens than the earth, which is literally an infinite difference. So to me, that was a reminder for humility to say, this seems very clear to you that you weren't caught that you took a leap of faith and that it wasn't answered. But remember, God's thoughts are not your thoughts and his ways are different than yours. Um, that was helpful to me. It didn't relieve my suffering, but it did help me to consider that I may not be understanding my life experiences. And that invited humility and faith. The Matthew 7 part of this equation was God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And secondly, he says as a part of the Sermon on the Mount that 
God knows how to give good gifts. When he asks which of you, if your son asked for bread, would give him a stone? And the obvious answer is no one would. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does God know how to give good gifts to those that ask him? That seems to be an unconditional promise as I read it. He doesn't say he might answer. He says he will answer for those that ask. And before that, there's the ask and ye shall receive, knock and it shall be opened segment. So it seemed to me that God is going to give good gifts if you ask. And we were asking. And then the only question is, can you recognize good gifts when they're given? And when I was disappointed, when we were disappointed, I would remind myself that what I may need to be considering is my capacity to recognize a good gift rather than whether God was giving one. The potential for more MS symptoms was often overwhelming. We didn't read science and medical literature about that because it just was too much to think about all the different things that could happen. And as an autoimmune disease, it's rare that anyone gets all of the symptoms, but the symptoms can be quite extreme and encompassing. And so it became our practice and we made a deliberate decision to face only what we had to face together and not try and anticipate what might come. We would deal only with what was. And I think that was a really important strategy for us because I think we could have been overwhelmed if we had tried to do more. We had challenges, both of us, fighting situational depression. Swimming was a lifeline for us both. Anne went every week, sometimes six times a week. She inspired many people who saw her determination. I'm a swimmer. I swim six days a week. And it's been for me a lifeline for stress management, for meditation and prayer, for problem solving, as well as for um, fitness and health. And I typically go to two pools, one at Fairmont in Sugar House, and that was Anne's main pool after she could no longer go to the sports mall. But years after she stopped going to the sports mall, and then when I would go to Fairmont and still today, when people find out that I'm Anne's husband, they say, oh my gosh. Usually they tear up and they say, she was such an inspiration to me. And these are people that are committed to fitness, but they would say, I would come and think I had done a good job just getting to the gym to have my workout. And then I'd see Anne in the wheelchair with a helper bringing her. And she was so pleased to be there, all smiles. And that was her happy place. She loved being in the pool. But those testimonials about Anne and her determination, her courage, uh, are something that just keep on coming. Anne was the bravest person that I have ever known. There was no quit in her. Her love for our boys and for me was a treasure, as I knew it would be. It was clear to me that she is my soulmate and that we knew each other before we came here. Her ability to endure what she endured on a daily basis with dignity and grace still amazes me. Richard, I don't know how she did it. I truly don't. Her positive, she had a positive attitude all throughout, 
though not without periodic moments of despair. And that positive attitude made it possible for all the rest of us to keep on going. The challenge for for me and for Anne in terms of our marriage was to survive the fiery trial of her MS and protect our love at the same time. And that meant finding ways to support her that involved more people than me so that we could maintain our husband and wife relationship and not have it be completely overwhelmed by the caregiver relationship. I was her primary support person along with our sons, Matt and Drew, for the first 15 years that she could not walk. Although I have to say we had the support of neighbors and friends um, in an amazing way, taking her to the pool, getting groceries, Costco runs, getting her to medical appointments, taking her for ice cream cones in the afternoon at McDonald's and doing odds and ends of all kinds later When I began teaching at Michigan, she had sleepover girls' nights and each fall, and people would come and spend the night with her to make sure she wasn't alone while I was gone teaching. I I can't overstate how incredible and how sustaining it was to have that kind of support and love from all the people around us, truly angels all around us. In 2009, our daughter-in-law, Jess, lived with us for the summer while Drew was getting a master's in Italian at Middlebury College in Vermont. So we had that time with Jess, and truly, Jess was a miracle. She was a miracle that helped us to continue on when we thought we couldn't. She dove in as Anne's primary caregiver during that summer, and she built the system that relied on amazing friends and neighbors and took it to a new level. She pioneered daily routines and care approaches and instilled in Anne a renewed sense of what she could do. That included taking her to the zip line in Park City for numerous zip line runs, wow. which would later culminate in a skydive the next wow. Halloween that she did with a tandem partner. So Jess just created a, an entirely new world for Anne. She created a framework for caring for and empowering Anne. It was a pure labor of love beyond what would be, could be expected by a daughter or a daughter-in-law. Jess was the model for what would follow, finding amazing young women that we called bonus daughters to support Anne and also to be mentored by her, to benefit from her wisdom, from her strength, from her, for her life experience. She was blessed to be an amazing counselor. That also was in her patriarchal blessing. She was wise. And after Jess left that summer, we found Rosie and Debbie, two caregivers that then helped us create the system that we needed to create going forward. In 2011, Matt and his wife, Tori, spent a summer with us before leaving in the fall, and they told us they were not leaving without setting up home care services for Anne. The quote to us was, was, quote, dad is doing too much and it is not enough for mom's support. We were reluctant to take that step. It felt like we were giving up privacy and control, and we felt like we could make it work, but they were adamant, and they made it happen before they left. We immediately scaled it down from 24-hour support (laughs) to day support. We we didn't need somebody sleeping in an adjacent room. Um, But home care proved not to be ideal for Anne. Uh, She was a patient in that construct, and she didn't want to be a patient. So the vision that was inspired by Jess of engaging bright young women to come help her, who she could also help, came into play at this point. 
we created a system of care with two amazing young women, Anna Lee and Michelle, and slowly found amazing young women to come as helpers. And one after another, they found others that they thought could be added to this group that also would do well and would love the relationship with Anne. This system of caregivers sustained us for more than a dozen years. Wow. It was an amazing creation. It truly was. And uh, detailed list of things to do and ways to care for Anne on a daily basis. We had at its peak 10 helpers who rotated through day shifts. They became like daughters to us. And over the next um, more than a dozen years, over 35 of them came and helped us in that way. At Anne's gravesite service, 20 of them were present, and each one laid Anne's favorite flower, a daisy, on her casket. It took about five minutes for all 20 of them to come up one after another and do that, and there was just a holy and respectful silence in that service while those young women came up and paid tribute to, to Anne. Each one of them had an amazing relationship with her. Richard, it's hard to distill 43 years into um, an hour, but I hope that that gives enough color and substance to the story that, that it may be of help, as you mentioned earlier, to some who may be struggling with difficult things that may relate to this experience that we had. There are some lessons that I learned that I'd like to just share. Please. Um, First is life paths are very personal. There is no single template for a life and no single template for navigating a serious health issue with, with a loved one. So my experience, our experience is not a formula and it's not a blueprint for anyone else. Uh, at the same time, there may be things from our experience that could be helpful to others. Secondly, we only truly understand the depth of the big challenges that we have actually experienced. I know now better than ever before that deep empathy comes from deep experience. God's thoughts are truly not our thoughts. Uh, for me, that meant leave a space for things to be different than you think they are and challenge your own notions of good and bad experiences. Our Father does know how to give good gifts to his children, but we do not always recognize them as good gifts. That was certainly true for me. And then it's a matter of faith to, to choose to believe that when your life experience seems to contradict it. There were times where it didn't feel that we were receiving a good gift. And it was just a choice to say we choose to believe that, even though we couldn't see it in our immediate experience. You mentioned this earlier. Learning to truly love is the greatest gift of a mortal lifetime. Anne taught me that. And I will be forever grateful to her for that. I don't think we can learn a more profound lesson in life. Losing our life to be true to Christ and those we love is literally finding it in ways we could not have comprehended. That was true for me. There were times where I felt like I was missing out on so many things because of the challenges that we had together. And I confess there were times I looked at other people and, and envied what I thought they had. Something as simple as just a couple walking down the street uh, holding hands, which was something that 
we couldn't do in that same way. And I wondered at times if I was losing my life, if I was giving it up. And, and I, I can say honestly, although it took years for me to understand this, that instead I found it. And I'm not sure I even can completely articulate that in terms of comprehending it, but it is true. Learning to love all of our life experience, I believe, is a spiritual triumph. I again confess I was slow to learn this lesson, and I mean decades. It took me decades to learn that I needed to embrace the difficult experiences along with the sweet, the bitter with the sweet. That's a part of the design of life. It's designed into mortality. It's what we're here to experience. I spent decades trying to carve out and eliminate the more difficult experiences. And it was only when I learned to embrace all of it, and I now put that in quotes, to me it's a reminder, be grateful for all of it, the good, the bitter, all of it. Only then is when I began to feel the spiritual affirmation that I was on the path that God intended me to be on. For those who may be in the middle of something like this, each time we hit the wall, and there were many over the 43 years, we found strength in our family, Matt, Drew, Jess, and Jackie. So many friends, too numerous to mention, who helped us, ministered to us, were the vehicle for special tender mercies and miracles. And Jesus Christ, the anchor of our faith. We received many miracles, small and large, all along the way. I, I couldn't tell this story without acknowledging that. We learned a particular kind of agility and resilience we had to to survive. Part of that was engaging in service to others, and that's something that Anne did in many ways, including tutoring children, instituting a reading program for babies in the primary children's hospital, newborn intensive care unit, which still exists today. Wow and creating a memorial service for all the children who had died at Primary Children's Hospital each year, which also still happens each year. She's the one that created that. And last of all, I would just say this. Uh, Anne and I would never have signed up for this. And I told Richard before we started the podcast, if somebody had said, here's what you're going to experience, I don't think I'd have had the courage to say okay. But also, now, we wouldn't change it. And I don't have the words to entirely explain that, but there is something beautiful in it, something ineffable. It can't be described or articulated. I believe and I have felt this spiritual impression a number of times that Anne was not healed. Not because she wasn't worthy and not good enough, but because God trusted her to carry unusual burdens. And in doing so, she came and even more became a more extraordinary person in that process. So I think I will end with that, Richard. There's probably a lot of listeners that are like me that are just so deeply moved, Joe, by this beautiful love story of you and Anne and the life lessons. There were nine in the list that I wrote down as Joe went through them. 
Um, I usually have a lot of questions after a podcast. I don't have any questions. My impression is anything I would add at this point might distract a little bit from what you've already shared with us. And um, I will go through this podcast again and re-listen to especially those nine lessons after understanding your story, because I think the story is a beautiful, sacred love story. The nine lessons apply to all of us. And you're careful to say, don't take my story and make it your story, but the lessons are grounded in principles that to me give all of us on the unique roads we're walking tools to walk those roads. And that's one of your gifts and Anne's gift for our listeners. Thank you, Richard. You should never marry. Now we could talk about that a little bit more. <laughs> I'd love to sit by you on your plane ride home from Rome, Italy, and hear about your dreams for your future and the reality of your future. And would you change anything? I think you've answered that question. Yeah, I I thought many times going through it that I would change lots of things. But having gone through it and experienced the totality of it, no, I, I wouldn't change anything. And I assume you didn't even know if you'd have kids. We didn't. could have kids. No, we, we were told, first of all, not to try because it was believed incorrectly, as it turns out, that pregnancy could be the um, trigger for an exacerbation mm. of multiple sclerosis. So the safe thing to do was not to have children, but that did not coincide with our spiritual sense about what we were supposed to do. So that was another risk that we took, and obviously one that um, we've never regretted. It's such an amazing blessing to have had the chance together to become parents of two unbelievably incredible boys. Uh, I've, I have to say, if this sounds like embellishment, it's not. I all the way through, including including the teenage years, <laughs> um, I felt, and Anne did, that we'd been given unusual challenges on the health side, but we were given unusual blessings on the family side. And Matt and Drew were um, the biggest part of that. Just amazing, amazing souls. Well, Matt, Drew, Jess, Jackie, if you're listening, this is a credit to all of you. and. I think you've got five grandkids now, and um, they will always know Anne. Yes, they will. And, and Aunt Jackie, um, <laughs> Jackie's been an amazing person. We could do another 20 minutes just on her, but she, she dove in also and was one of those miracle workers when we needed it most. She lives in Seattle, but she was a constant presence uh, giving us advice and then helping us find help and resources when we hit the wall and couldn't find a way to go forward. Jackie was a special angel to our family and to Anne and to me and, and still is. Um, I, a few thoughts come to my mind. These are the things I wrote down. I only wrote down three things, which is the least I've ever written down because I think you answered everything 
but the one was you should never marry. And I loved um, this line, deal only with what is. And you're, you and Anne are bright people that obviously could learn everything about MS. And you did from a standpoint of wanting to get the very best treatment. But you also created some boundaries there where you didn't have to learn all the different possible outcomes. So you didn't put your head in the sand and say, we don't have MS and we're not going to talk about it. But you did create a boundary there where you didn't need to know all the possible things that could occur to Anne. I thought that was very thoughtful. And perhaps that's helpful for others that are walking difficult roads and, and just have to have boundaries to be able to do, just deal with what is. Um, I love how Anne blessed so many people. And in this, and I'm sure if she could be on the podcast or all these mentors, all these people that put her a, a daisy, I believe was the flower. Is that right? Yes. Um, there's, there's hundreds of podcasts that people could spend an hour talking about Anne and her role for good in their life and these same lessons. Um, do you have any last thoughts you'd like that come to your mind, Joe? Just the one that you and I started with, which is, I, I hope my intent and yours was to honor Anne with the telling of this story, to give a faithful, honest, authentic account of this life experience that she and I and our sons had together over all these years in the hopes that it would be helpful to someone else. And I, I hope that, there's, that there are people out there uh, who listen to your podcasts that will find some element of hope, of help, of comfort in, in what I've shared today, because that, that really was the purpose of, of doing this. Thank you, Joe. So we'll sign off. Um, Richard Osler and Joe Horton signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.